I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Hello, 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 all, and welcome to Tuesday's episode of the Endless Hustle podcast, where we dig into the lives of your favorite athletes and cultural figures to determine how they got to the top of their craft and how that success translates to business and life outside the bright lights. I am your host, Bro Bible's Matt Cohan, and I am joined, as always, by a man who needs no introduction, Arthur Cade. We have an absolute behemoth of a guest today, but as a guy who's never successfully landed a kickflip, I'd feel like a fraud for introducing him, so I'm going to kick it over to my friend, Mr. Cade. Well, Matt. Tony Hawk. That's all I have to say. I don't even need to like give him a preview. Tony Hawk. I mean, there, you talk about a cultural icon. As we were going through this chat with Tony, Matt, it blew my mind to think about how many different ways he has touched society from arguably being the greatest skateboarder of all time to being the face of the X Games, which has become a cultural phenomenon to being the, the, the name and face of one of the most popular video games, which was just re-released, to all the movie cameos, to building an empire with skateboards and brands and being worth over $100 million, to now being over 50 years old and skating with the likes of TikTok star Addison Ray. Tony Hawk has been in the cultural mainstream pretty much his whole adult life, and few athletes have touched so many different points of society as this guy and for us to be able to explore through this chat and get his feedback his takes and also the humility that this is a dude who never really saw this coming and for him to look back on the things that we touched on and almost not fully grasp how much he is iconic blew my mind yeah, Arthur, full disclosure, I think we've done about, we've done probably about 20, 25 interviews with athletes at the top of their sport and Josh Dumel, never forget. But I feel like this interview beforehand, I was the most nervous I've been because I've probably been on a skateboard about three times in my life. I couldn't tell you what an ollie is. So I had a fear that I was going to not be able to speak to him on his level. I'd like run out of things to talk about. But within the first two minutes, it became immediately apparent that skateboarding was just a door for Tony Hawk to bring Tony Hawk to the masses. I mean, he was talking about everything, you know, his appearance on The Simpsons, going to Sierra Leone, hosting the first uh, skateboarding event in India. I mean, this guy was just like a seven layer truffle cake. I mean, this guy just had so much depth and, you know, he was going to be famous or make an impact in the world, whether it be skateboarding or not. And I think that is very much apparent in this interview. What was fascinating was when he was telling us, because earlier this year, they re-released Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, and it was like the number one trending topic globally on Twitter for like two days. And I remember growing up with that video game. So to see a millennial and Gen Z audience responding in conversation around that video game, which by the way, brought in $1.4 billion since its inception, that blew my mind. I was like, man, people just care. And you forget again, this guy has now been present in the cultural mainstream for three to four generations. Yeah, he almost has like his 
kind of temperament and personality, it's almost like he doesn't even know how successful he is. I mean, I looked at it, it was like 180 million. Don't quote me on that, but almost a quarter of a billion dollars. And he- He's editing his own videos. He's editing his own damn videos. Pay someone 20 bucks an hour to do that. No, but he's Tony Hawk and he's authentic and he knows that's what his audience wants. So he's going to stick to what works. And authenticity, you can see, and we talk about this in the interview. He He said that's why he does it. Authenticity is his calling card and that's why he's been successful for what 30 years and by the way just hearing him geek out about the moments he's had he sounded like a big kid from meeting the likes of brad pitt and tom hanks to the movie cameos being will ferrell's stunt double which was a great story and how he called that the top of the mountain it reminds you that celebrities they're just like us and even when you're tony hawk you can geek out just like us pretty cool stuff Absolutely. All right. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is cultural icon, skateboarding legend, and just all around good dude, Tony Hawk. Huge day at the Endless Hustle podcast today as we invite skateboarding legend, cultural icon, video game mogul, and philanthropist, Tony Hawk. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, no problem, man. How are you holding up in this pandemic here? I know you got a house full of kids and family there. So you guys, you guys on the straight and narrow? Yeah, straight and narrow. I don't know if that would be the definition <laughs> of it, but uh, we are managing and figuring it out as we go, trying to be as safe as possible while allowing the kids to have their own lives. Speaking of kids, Tony, I just saw an amazing video of you teaching Addison Ray to skate, who is probably oh, the most, yeah. I mean, that that girl has taken over the planet. What was your social media feed like after that went viral? <laughs> uh, I, I get, I think when things like that happen, I get a lot of new followers and then they, they come into my world and realize that maybe they're not as interested in hardcore skating as they thought they were. And so they, they all sort of fade away. But to her credit, she really went for it. There are certain musicians, celebs and things, they try to associate themselves with skating because they think it'll give them some sort of street cred, but they don't really do it. She really tries. I mean, she went down a couple times when we were doing our thing and her handlers were all on pins and needles, like wanted to jump in and stop the whole thing. And she got back up, you know, and kept going. Do you realize at that moment how popular she is? Because think about the generational gap. You're a cultural icon. Is there this kind of cross, hey, I, she knows I'm Tony Hawk, but hey, I know she's Addison, right? I probably wouldn't have known who she was. I mean, I, I, obviously, if they, the request came in, I would look her up, but I knew she was to my kids, um, especially my 12-year-old daughter. So luckily, I have that sort of focus group in my household, and I can tell what, I can gauge what things maybe I, I should be associating with and which ones I shouldn't. You were father of the year after that one, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, I want to take it back about 40 years here because you tested your 99 percentile in IQ. Your father was a decorated military guy. Your mom earned a doctorate while raising four kids. You obviously come from great stock. So was there ever a thought to what you'd become outside of skateboarding or did it just happen so early that it became the obvious choice? A little bit of both. It definitely, I loved skating. I was very young. I didn't consider it to be my career choice because it wasn't that popular. So no one was really making a living at skateboarding when I was in my teens, when I was really starting to thrive in it in terms of success, like competition. But 
it still did, you know, it was more like, well, you'll get to do this until you get out of high school and you got to figure out what you're going to do for a job. And so the only prospects I saw were maybe being a teacher because I felt like I always helped my friends do their math. And I know it wasn't high aspirations, but I felt like it was the one thing that I was, I was pretty good at. And what, later on, especially in high school, I got into computers very early and editing video and doing things like that. So I thought, all right, this is probably what I'll chase if skateboarding is not a career. And I guess I did a little bit of both because now that, you know, on my social media, I'm editing all my videos. So I did learn some valuable skills then. You run it yourself, right? Your, all your social media, you do that yourself. I do, yeah. And actually, you'll see the name on this. I'm using my wife's laptop because mine's I know, Catherine yeah. So my, my laptop is in the shop and it may be irrecoverable. And I'm really trying not to think about that right now. You realize though, you're Tony Hawk and can probably afford people to edit, right? Yeah, sure. But I enjoy it. And, and honestly, I, I couldn't do social media if I felt like anyone else was producing it. It's because it wouldn't be my voice. It wouldn't be my, my perspective. And I know there are plenty of people who have their handlers and they have people posting stuff, but, but I feel like that the authenticity shines through. And if someone is having other people do it, and it's always more like the, the marketing tactics, kids see right through that. What was the moment for you, Tony, that you knew you had made it, that you had crossed from this niche sport into the cultural mainstream? Being on The Simpsons, that was it. That was, the, that was definitely the high mark of acceptance. I mean, geez, you know, what a dream. Like I got, to, I got to literally star in an episode with Bart. When that happens, first of all, walk me through, for those who will never be on The Simpsons like Matt and I, how does something like that even come about? Let's see, it was probably, it was, I think it was in 2000, 2001-ish, and I, I had a publicist. Uh, I had just recently gotten one because suddenly I, I felt like there was all this press and things that I, I couldn't really navigate myself. And so she said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pitch you to shows. And behind the scenes, she pitched me to The Simpsons. So Sarah Hall Productions, thank you very much. I still work with her. She pitched me to Simpsons and I didn't realize that. And, and next thing I know, she sends me a script, like a full episode. She said, hey, The Simpsons want you to star in an episode. Here's the script. Can you make this work? And I was like, yes, anytime, anyhow, I will make that work. What was, what was your reaction when you finally saw yourself in that episode? My first reaction was, do they think I'm bald? And the second reaction was, uh, <laughs> it was unreal. It was, it was unbelievable. Like the idea that, that my character is standing next to all these iconic characters. The most fun part of that process actually was going to Fox Studios and doing the table read because every character is there in the same room. And that's the only time that happens. When they go to record it, everyone has their individual lines and they're doing it in the studio. So I got to see the Simpsons come to life with all these random people in a room. It was amazing. God, that is amazing. Tony, I'm only saying this because when I was a kid, I struck out on a pitch that was three feet over my head in front of my father. From what I understand, <laughs> you had a similar experience at the plate in your childhood. Can you run us through that or is it still a little too painful? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I've, I've, uh, I've processed it enough. I was playing Little League. My dad was the coach of our team, which you know, doesn't bode well for the pressure that you feel. Right. And I got up to bat and I struck out like you. And I really never, th I just didn't plan for that. I didn't, I, I didn't think that that was even a possibility. And also, as far as I was concerned, you go to baseball, you go into baseball and you get one for the team, you get a hit. And suddenly I realized that there is a, a much darker reality to 
trying to play team sports and I just went and hid in the canyon. I was embarrassed because I thought I let my team down. I thought I let my dad down. It took him a while to coax me back out. Is that the only team sport that you've ever kind of given a crack at or were you involved in basketball or football growing up or anything like that? Uh, I played basketball. I was a little bit better at basketball, but I was really short for my age. So that didn't help. But the, the year, the year that I decided to devote myself to skateboarding was the year that they appointed my dad little league president. And so that was an awkward conversation. <laughs> You're like, dad, I'm going to go skateboard. Yeah. And he's like, what's true? The fuck. <laughs> he, no, well, he knew that I loved it and he was supportive of it. It just happened to be that when I started to find my, my own way in skating and start to get better at it and start to get some confidence, that's when they, they made him the little league president. And so I told him like, I want to do this. I'm sorry. And he said, okay, well, I'll just finish out the year as president for all these other kids. The thing people don't realize about Tony, by the way, and that was the first time I'd ever met you, is how big you are. Like, I'm 6'2", and you had a solid two inches on me. I was like, <laughs> 6'3". Yeah, or maybe an inch, but I was like kind of surprised. I'm like, shit, Tony Hawk's a pretty big guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird because I grew up as a runt, and as I got bigger – all the pools I was skating started to feel really small. And so then I started building much bigger ramps. And so people are really intimidated by my ramp because it's 14 feet tall, but it's where I feel most comfortable because of my height. It absolutely blew my mind this year when they announced the video games being re-released and you guys were trending number one on Twitter worldwide. And to see people from every generation commenting, little kids, middle-aged guys like myself, these video games, to think about what they have become in, from an iconic standpoint in the cultural stratosphere, is it mind-blowing to you still? It is, and I've heard the noise all through the years, especially in the last five years or so, of people wanting these games remastered for the new systems, and it just wasn't up to me. I, I know it's my name, but obviously Activision holds that license and it's their money if they're going to produce something like this and it's their risk. So it was more on them to do it. It was all sort of synchronicity that we were coming up on 20 years of the first game and I wanted to do a concert to celebrate that, but also to benefit our foundation for public skate parks. So I put together an event in San Diego, um, Bad Religion headlined, and I really just contacted Activision because I needed their blessing that I would be doing this and, and putting the name out there, like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. So I had lunch with the, the CEO of Activision, Bobby Kotick, and I said, look, it's been 20 years. I just want to do this event. I want your guys' approval on it. And he said, oh, sure, that would be awesome. We'd love to, you know, we'll donate some game stations and we'll, we'll do make a, a donation to the foundation. And off the cuff, he just said, why don't we remaster those games? And I said, that's all anybody asks me on, on social media. Like that is definitely the number one question I get. And he said, oh man, we've had some success with other games. Let's, yeah, let's go, let's do it. I got Vicarious Visions. They're probably right, want to be on this. And, and that was it. Like if he says go, it happens. And from that moment on, we were working on it. 20 years ago, when you see these video games released and the popularity, I mean, you could put them probably on the Mount Rushmore of most popular and influential video games ever created. What goes through your mind 20 years back when you see the success they were having? Well, it's an honor that 
that they stood the test of time for one. I'm really proud of, of the quality of the games, but also I never realized how much the culture would be embraced through the games, including music and the skaters and the fashion and, the, and even the language. Those are the things that were more of the gravy of all this, where it was just like, wait a second, a general video game fan knows what a 360 flip to no slide looks like? Like that is absurd to me because that used to be just this exclusive language for skaters who were already considered outcasts and what they choose to do with how they look. And all of a sudden it was this thing that became embraced by a whole new generation. And I'm really proud of it. I mean, I, I can't believe that even just the soundtrack, you know, people have such an affinity for that game, introducing them to new styles of music. And that's just the stuff we grew up with listening to in skate parks. You mentioned uh, Activision, you know, let's take it back. I think 30 years now, they offer you a 500,000 buyout for future royalties. You turn <laughs> it down as like a 20 year old kid, which is psychotic for, you know, anybody looking on the outside. Obviously it paid off for you. It's the right decision. But I'd imagine that it took some balls to turn down that immediate payoff. Did you beat yourself up over that decision at the time or how did that go down? Well, at the time I felt like I was hitting a stride in what I would call my second career as a pro skater because I had had some success in the 80s when I was in my teens and early 20s as at skating, obviously, and, and saw it all sort of fall off when I was in my mid-20s. So when this happened, I was about 31 at the time. And suddenly I found myself in a pretty good position because I had some prospects, I had new sponsors, I was still competing, there were a lot of events, X Games were thriving. And so suddenly I felt like, well, I, I do have a chance at making this happen again, but maybe in a bigger way. And so when Activision offered me that money, I had just bought a new house for my family that was, was finally a decent size. And I thought, I'm doing all right. You know, I, I don't necessarily need that big payout right now. If they had offered it to me probably a month ahead of that, where I didn't have this new house, I might've taken it. Tony, where did the whole, you look like Tony Hawk craze start? Like, can you, do you remember the first time that it happened? And then you were like, let me document this on social media. I think the, the first time it happened where I thought it was a funny interaction was a few years ago and I was flying home. I actually was in Alaska doing a heli snowboard trip and I was flying home and the TSA agent looked at my ID and my ID says Anthony because that's my legal name. No one ever called me Anthony except for doctors and teachers on the first day of school. But this woman looked at my, I remember it vividly because she looked at it, she's like, it's like, Hawk, oh, like Tony Hawk, like that skater. I said, exactly. And she said, oh, I wonder what he's up to these days. And I looked at her and I said, this. And she just handed my ID and off I went. And it was so, it, it was so, it was just this, this sort of interaction that didn't seem like it meant anything. But then I sat down at my gate waiting for my flight. I thought like, that was pretty funny. If anyone had witnessed that and, and maybe knew who I was, they would think it was unbelievable. So I just shared it. And that kind of, that's what started it. And then it either happens because they see my ID and it says Anthony, or they see me in person and they just know me from my younger days because that's maybe when they saw me on TV or in video games or whatnot. So they don't expect this face to get older. And then, so they see my face and they're like, man, you look like that one dude, but no, can't be. Didn't you get mistaken for Lance Armstrong at some point? What I find is that, they will just immediately go to a pro athlete name. So yes, one time a guy said, Lance Armstrong. one guy said Tom Brady, and I was like, dude, this, come on. Giving Tom too much credit. 
<laughs> you mentioned the X Games. When the X Games were started, things like that could go either way. It could be an enormous disaster or it could become the X Games. When did you know the X Games had legs and how did they actually transform the brand of skateboarding? I think that, well, the, the first X Games felt like a bit of a circus because they were just throwing anything out there, sky surfing, bungee jumping, rock climbing, eco, you know what I mean? It was just like, these are extreme. And as skaters, we took a bit of offense to that because it was like, no, we skate, we're not, you know what I mean? We don't do these other things. Just, just because we ride skateboards doesn't mean we want to get wacky with all these other, you know, auxiliary sports or outcast sports. And so I would say the first year was, was a little bit shaky in terms of what, what is this going to feel like to the audience? But by the third year, 97, 98, is when I saw them in. And they really enjoyed what we had to offer in terms of being more accessible, more like, I think that the, the idea that pro athletes right around that time were just untouchable, especially basketball players, football players. It was like, oh, they're just out here. They, we wouldn't even relate to them. They live in these fantasy lives. And here we were literally risking our lives for not very much money or fame or fortune. And they were like that the kids were, were really tuned into it. When I knew it had broader reach was my friend who I grew up skating with became a chemical engineer and he works at Hewlett Packard. He told me that, oh, I heard these guys in the next cubicle talking and they're like, see Tony Hawk on the street out in extreme games. Like, yeah, man, he got ripped off. He should have got first. And he's like, those dudes are just office workers. Like they have no connection to skateboarding. And that's when I knew that, oh, this is probably reaching a different audience now. Obviously, with your sport, it starts out as a niche sport. So listen, if I'm trying to make it to the NBA, I know I'm going to probably end up being famous if um, at the elite level or NFL or any of the other sports. When you start out as a skateboarder, there's probably no intention of ever becoming famous. When you start experiencing fame for the first time and people do recognize you know the name Tony Hawk, how are you able to really embrace that but also understand it and process it it's taken me a long time honestly because i when i like you said when i got into skating there was no promise of fame or fortune no one had experienced that so there was nothing to aspire to in that sense and that's not why i did it i did it because of what it what it provided me in terms of my self-confidence and my sense of identity and so as i had a bit of fame in the 80s that was awkward, but, but it was kind of fun because I was young and, you know, there's, there's all these spoils that go with that. And, and then when it happened again into my adult life, I think that's when I realized that I had an opportunity and I had a voice that could affect change. And so that's when I embraced it more in terms of philanthropy and trying to create more skate parks and things like that. And yeah, absolutely. It was super fun to, to be recognized and to be invited on stuff like The Simpsons and talk shows and movie cameos. And I can get uh, restaurant reservations pretty easily now and things like that were, were, you know, those were all perks for sure. But, but I felt like there was a deeper importance to it. And also it's weird to navigate fame when you have a family because that can take away from them and your time with them. And so you have to learn to prioritize and to, to keep your boundaries. And I really haven't learned that until the last like five, 10 years. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it obviously opened up a lot of opportunities for you, you know, being invited to skate at the white house in 2009 or skating in India. Is there any one experience that rises above the rest for you in your career? 
Wow. Well, skating through the White House is pretty cool, but I mean, that was, you know, very renegade. And I guess that was more of a skater, <laughs> a skater approach to being there. I did get to skate. Well, I went to Sierra Leone on a charity mission for a group. They were helping to the kids that were kind of forced into being soldiers during the Civil War. They were helping them to become kids again and to play again. So I went there and they had never seen a skateboard. And I brought a skateboard out and we literally were visiting a school that had been bombed out, but they had concrete on the, on the ground. And so I'm skating on the concrete and the kids were flipping out. They kept saying roller boogie because they thought it was roller skates. So they said roller boogie boogie, and they wanted me to give them rides. I don't know. For me, that was just one of the more special experiences because I was introducing these kids to skateboards. They had never even experienced it. And then I was giving them rides along with me and they thought it was like a magic carpet. When did the nickname Birdman happen? Uh, I think someone on X Games said it somewhere. I'm going to blame Salema Masakela for that one. And at some point I was sort of denouncing it, but I've come to embrace it. It's fine. You said that your I've made it moment was being on The Simpsons, but in the early 2000s, it was made public that you were requested to meet with Warner Brothers to do a film tentatively called Skate Jam with Looney Tunes that ultimately never materialized. That, that happened after The Simpsons, but yeah, that was, that's true. I, I, I mean, they were serious. Like they, we, we had contracts on the table. They were so eager to do it that they met me at LAX. You know, that, that restaurant at LAX in the middle, that sort of dome thing. I was flying out to Australia to do a cameo in a movie and they met me at that restaurant because they wanted to secure this whole project before I left. And so they came and they said, we're going to shoot this as soon as you get back. Here's the contract. They, they literally offered me a million dollars to do it. And while I was in Australia, they released Back in Action, which is a movie with uh, Brendan Fraser and Looney Tunes characters. And that was supposed to be the, the springboard to reintroducing Looney Tunes characters to the movies. And so the next movie was going to be mine, which was Skate Jam. That movie didn't perform as they wanted it to. And by the time I got back from Australia, two weeks later, it was over. Is it dead for good? Or because, I mean, with the success of the video games, you'd think that there would be like that, already that introduction into like that digital. Down. I, I didn't burn any bridges. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. Do it. Can we be executive producers now that you brought that up, Matt? Yeah, what do you of say? course. Yeah. That, isn't that how Hollywood works? What are some of the celebrities out there that you would love to give skating lessons to? <laughs> Wow. Well, I know Brad Pitt ha had or has a skate park in his backyard. So that'd be pretty cool to show Tyler Durden how to do an ollie. Be down for that. I think, I think the skate park, you can look it up. I think the skate park is, was for his kids, but I think it was when he and Angelina were together. I don't know the whole scoop on it. I just know that he designed a pretty crazy skate park and the same guy who built it built my backyard park. So I know it's of good quality. We got to get Brad Pitt and Tony together. Let's do it. There's that famous meme, I'm not sure if you've seen it, it's Steve Buscemi from 30 Rock, where he's wearing a backwards hat, he's holding a skateboard. Yeah, yeah. You know oh, that yes. meme? You know, you're yeah. in your early I'm 50s. The living, I'm the living example of it these days. No, I was going to say, but your, your peak coolness in pop culture right now, and I'm not implying this, it's, I'm just curious, is there ever a fear that you could be the last one to know when your skating career is over and you become the living materialization of the Buscemi meme? I am hypercritical of my skating. So I think I'm going to know if I start sucking at it more first before anyone else. 
It's funny you mentioned that because SportsCenter actually tweeted you out earlier this year and they were like, look at Tony Hawk still crushing it at 54 years old. And it got me thinking like I'm 42 and I'm just trying to stay in great shape. How the heck are you doing it at 54? Well, I'm 52, so now 52, you give me sorry. hope that I got two more good years left. It's honestly just skating. I, I, I've been, since COVID hit, I have been skating more regularly than ever. So that's definitely helped to keep me in shape. That's been my main source of exercise through my whole life, that and surfing. And if I feel like I've been idle for too long, then I'll swim a bunch of laps at our pool, but I don't have any sort of crazy workout regimen. You've also had some pretty crazy injuries. What's been the worst? I broke my pelvis 2003, 2004, shooting an episode of Wild Boys with the Jackass crew, of course. But it, the thing that I did was purely my fault. And it took about eight weeks just to walk normally again. I was in bed for a month before that. And then uh, it took me a long time to get my confidence back. I was going to actually ask you about that because when you, listen, we think about, you know, again, NFL, NBA guys, and you see these horrific injuries on the field or on the court, and you're like, man, this could be career ending. Was there ever a moment for you during that process where you thought, this is it, I may never be able to be Tony Hawk again? Yeah, well, I, I definitely thought that I may not be able to get to my, to get to the level of skating that I had before that. I never thought I would quit skating. I don't know. I, I don't, I never think of it in these grandiose terms like that. I mean, team sports are much more black and white. You're either in the game or you're out. Skateboarding has so much opportunity and gray area and you don't have to conform to some certain standard to be a pro skater. It, it's more about what kind of style you have. And so I felt like if I'm able to get back on my skateboard, I'll still be able to be creative with it. I just may not be able to do the big spins and big sort of death defying stunts that I used to. And that's okay. And that's kind of where I've come to in my older age. I'm not trying to break any spinning or height records now. I'm just trying to do it in a way that I feel creative and that I can live to skate another day. When you were standing, you know, atop that vert ramp or about to do that loop of death, and there's an added pressure of, you know, people watching you, in that moment, what percentage is adrenaline? What percentage is fear? What percentage is nerves? How does that break out? Well, in the moment that you're speaking of, I think that it was more overconfidence that got me in trouble because it's something that, that I had done many times in the past. And so for me, it was more like, oh, this will be funny. We're in these monkey suits. Let's go do the loop. And so it was more off the cuff. And I didn't think that, oh, this could go horribly wrong because I had been doing it for so, I, I had done it for 30 shows in a row prior to that day on the Huck Jam. And what I didn't realize is that we're actually, the one that we're doing now is much more weathered. It, it feels different. And I know better than anyone that this can go horribly wrong. And I've seen it go horribly wrong for people who don't, either don't respect it or just don't have the timing. And in that moment, I didn't have the respect or the timing that I should have. And so I dropped in with a sense of invincibility and that was the biggest mistake. There was just a really great viral moment, Tony, with Dogface in the Fleetwood Mac video, which oh, yeah. again, another moment of bringing skateboarding to the mainstream. And in fact, Dogface, talk about maximizing his 15 minutes of fame. Just yeah. for, <laughs> he did, just did an ad for Boston Market, which was awesome. So great. What did you think about that moment and how it was able to expand the world of skateboarding? Oh, I loved it. It was just so simplistic, but it really, it spoke of joy. It, you know what I mean? You watch it and you can't help but get happy or feel like there's hope and, and feel like things can be fun. And it's just, it, you know, it's just him skating to work. <laughs> and I'm like, how cool is that? 
that he's just enjoying the ride. And I thought it was cool that it, that it transcended just skating and, and really maybe opened a lot of people's eyes to skating. Hats off to him. I mean, that's all it took to be riding down the street, sipping a drink. I would have done that a long time ago. I just saw he did an ad for Boston Market, and I thought to myself, man, you have this viral moment. Now, all of a sudden, the brands start attaching themselves to you. When you're starting early in your career, how difficult was it to get brands and corporate sponsors to actually engage into the sport and give you guys money? It was hard to do anything that wasn't endemic to skateboarding. So, obviously, there's the, the go-tos. There's deck sponsors, wheel sponsors, shoe sponsors, clothing sponsors, and then once you get outside of that, it was really tricky to navigate because one, if it was a big company, then they already had their own agenda. And it was more like, all right, we're going to pay you, but you're going to say these lines and you're going to speak. Like I did a thing in those days for Fruit Loops and they're like, okay, when you talk about Toucan Sam, you got to talk about him like he's an extreme athlete and that he's really good at all these sports now. And it was like, I didn't have the agency or the support to say no to that because I thought this is how it works. This is what you do. This is marketing, right? And I learned later on that I did have more leverage in those scenarios and it taught me a valuable lesson, but, but it was hard because they thought, look, we do this for a living. We have big marketing money. You guys are lucky to even be here. I mean, that's not what they said, but that's definitely what was implied. And at some point I was like, I don't want to do this like this. This is a bummer. I'm not, I'm not touting Toucan Sam anymore. It just felt cheesy. And, and it felt exploitive. But I'm lucky to have that experience because I know better now. Your kids are already great skateboarders. Riley is a professional. How do you approach parenting when, uh, do you try to kind of nudge them in, in one direction or the other? Or what's your, what's your kind of approach on that? I just try to get them to realize their potential. I don't really, I definitely don't push them into skating. If they want to skate, I'm down. They just love it anyway because their friends do it. You know, it's almost like I'm excluded from that scenario. These guys are always skating. In fact, they have a key to my office, my skate facility, and they go there without me even knowing it all the time, um, which is super fun. But I guess more like I want to empower them to reach their potential without pushing them into any scenario they're not comfortable with. And they're all different. They all approach it differently. Some are more, more risky. Some are more just about the, the flow and the experience of it. In the case of my daughter, she loves doing it, but she really enjoys it more when she's just with her friends her age. Girls. <laughs> There's probably a short list of people that if someone asked me, who are the living or dead people you would give your right arm to meet, would be on that list. In 2007, you started Athletes for Hope. And one of the people that started it with you is on that list, and that is Muhammad Ali. Did you get to meet Muhammad Ali? And if so, what was he like? I met him a couple times. He used to have an event for Parkinson's called Celebrity Fight Night in Phoenix. And they honored me at that uh, event along with Kevin Costner. So not only did I get to hang out with Muhammad Ali, I sat next to Robin Williams. So I sat next to Robin Williams during the event and got to hang out with Muhammad Ali. That was unreal. Is Robin in breaking out the characters? I've interviewed him and he goes in and out like literally like that. It was more like he was the peanut gallery for what was happening on stage. And I was his private audience. So whatever was going on stage, including, I remember Reba McIntyre was offering some auction item and he is just grilling it the whole time. I, can't, I mean, I can't even share what he said because it's so inappropriate. And I was the only one that got to hear it. You got a private show from Robin Williams yes. while sitting yes. next to freaking Muhammad Ali. Yes, yes. 
Do you get starstruck by anybody at all at this point in your career? For sure. I think it's more that, but I, I, I luckily I have the, the experience and the perspective to not approach them as such a creepy fan as I want to. And so more just to relax and, and be myself because that's what they value. And so I've learned that through my interactions with fans. I want to hear what they have to offer as well. What was the best story of you pulling out the Tony Hawk card to get a favor, whether it's a reservation somewhere or something for free, a sporting event? When did you use your name at the best and height of its ability? That is very tricky. I think it was not, not directly, but for sure it helped to have it was I got to go to the Oscars last year. And how that came to be was that there was a documentary about this group called Skatistan, which is a skate program and school in Kabul, Afghanistan. And they did a documentary on some of the girls that are members of Skatistan that go there to skate. And I am a board member of Skatistan. So they asked me if I would help to at least promote the movie or to raise awareness to the fact that it was, it was um, nominated for an Oscar for short film documentary. Like, yeah, sure, of course. And then Oliver, Ollie, the guy who runs Skatistan, that's true, his name is Ollie. He said, uh, man, you know, it got nominated. It's crazy. And I said, oh, that's amazing. He's like, so I'm going to the Oscars. He's like, I'll see you there. And I said, you'll see me there. I don't have a ticket to the Oscars. And he's like, oh, they didn't invite you? I go, Oliver, I'm here riding your coattails. You know what I mean? And so I said, if you could put the word in maybe that I want to go, that would be awesome. And the next thing I know, I get a phone call that said, hey, uh, we have two tickets for you to sit in the pit. You and your wife, where do you want them delivered to? So I pulled tickets to the Oscars. Is that a fun experience? That seems like it could be either really fun or really boring. Insane. It was super fun. Are you being approached by movie stars? I mean, are people like Brad Pitt coming up to you and just geeking out? I did get to meet him that night. And we actually connected because, like I said, the same guy built his skate park that built mine. So he's like, oh, yeah, you know, Joe, I know Joe. What's up? Oh, that's awesome. It was, uh, it was wild. I mean, yeah, we, we, got, we saw, I, I got to meet Tom Hanks. Does he know who you are? Like, obviously, Tom Hanks is a national treasure. He did, and, and I got to tell him that I, I appreciated that he, he has a, there's a scene in the movie Big where he skates. He does a little slalom, and I told him how good he was on a skateboard, and he was appreciative. I was going to actually ask you that, because anytime you're brilliant at your craft, and then you're watching either TV or movies and seeing people try to replicate it, especially when they fucking suck, it would drive me nuts. Do you ever watch certain projects and you're like, oh my God, could they have just not given me a call and I could have helped this person? Actually, I did a thing not too long ago. I think it was for GQ, but where they had me watch movie parts and give my perspective on them. And there are a couple that are painful. Who's your favorite skater today, Tony? Who's like in the grouping, the new generation that you're a big fan of? Oh man, there are so many skaters. Well, I'm, I'm more prone to vert skating and ramp skating. And Jimmy Wilkins is just, he's on another planet for the types of tricks that he can do and, the, and with such great style. And it's kind of obscure because, like I said, he's more of a ramp skater. And ramps, ramp skating is not really the, the popular style of skating these days. He transcends that, that, those groups because even street skaters are amazed by him. I literally am a huge James Bond fan and I see Jaws right behind your yeah. right shoulder. So I want to ask you about just the different designs of skateboards, but also... So the reason we have that is because one of our skaters, his nickname is Jaws. That's so Because cool. when he was in high school, he had giant braces and he kind of has big teeth anyway. 
And so people said that he was this guy. But we got a cease and desist on this one pretty quickly, so we're not selling that anymore. <laughs> How like much thought goes into, as a skater, what your board is going to look like and what the aesthetic of it is going to be? I leave it up to the pros like on my team to decide their graphic direction, unless we're doing a series that has a lot of continuity. But, I mean, it's pretty obvious. I'm going for Hawks <laughs> quite, a, quite a lot. An artist that I trust with their direction. Before we let you go, Tony, you've had so many amazing movie cameos. What was your favorite experience? Well, I, I did uh, Daddy's Home, and I was the stunt double for Will Ferrell. I mean, that's it. That's the top of the, that's the, top of the mountain. God, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, like I did Will Ferrell's skateboard stunts, and then I got to hang out with him on set. What was he like off camera? He's just the best. He's hilarious. And then he was asking me, there, there's a scene in that movie, because Mark Wahlberg was in it too. There's a scene in that movie where he's yelling off the roof, and he's trying to explain that he used to be a hardcore skater in the, in the 70s and 80s. And so he just starts throwing out different skate parks and backyard pools and things that I was feeding him. Back in Pomona Pipe and Pool. And, just saying, and I was laughing. I was laughing so hard I had to leave the set. What's still left on the Tony Hawk bucket list? I am working on, well, obviously it got very stalled, but I'm working on a Broadway production with Mark Mothersbaugh. And he's doing the music, which he has. We have the music ready to go. We have the script ready to go. And it's going to involve skating on stage. Obviously, Broadway is on hold, but we're still moving forward with the plans because I, I feel very strongly about this project. It would be something fresh in the world of stage production. And the story's great. We bought the rights to a Nick Hornby book about a kid, a teenager, a skater who his girlfriend gets pregnant and how he navigates that while still trying to skate. I'm excited. That, that would be, if we, if we could somehow get that thing together and make it happen on a stage, that, that would be my big bucket list right now. Thank you for joining everybody at home. Go buy Pro Skater 1 and 2 completely remastered. It's going to be well worth it. Tony, thank you, man. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for having me. One other plug, Tony Hawk Foundation. You're doing really great work with that, Tony. We didn't bring it up during the interview, but congrats with everything you're doing with the foundation. Uh, thanks. We, we just renamed it. It's called the Skate Park Project. Still the same mission, same work. I just wanted to remove my name from it because I feel like the the mission is much bigger than me. So Skate Park Project, we're still, we've uh, helped to fund over almost over a thousand skate parks in the U.S. in our last 19 years. Awesome, man. Thanks for a wonderful interview, Tony, and great seeing you again. Thank you. All right, folks, that was the one and only Tony Hawk. I have to say, Matt, just through my career, I've had the privilege of interviewing so many celebrities from all different genres, but there are a few people that again, have touched so many generations in so many ways as Tony Hawk. So it's hard just not to geek out over him. And of course, the fact that he was just so nice and so giving of his time and really willing to talk upon any topic that we threw out there just made me love him even more. And by the way, I feel like it's our personal mission now to get him and Brad Pitt together at Brad Pitt's house to skate I mean, Tyler Durden and Tony Hawk, I'm in. That would be incredible. Do it for charity. That would be, he would be all in for that. But, you know, Tony Hawk is one of those guys that, like, he just makes you feel bad for how little you've accomplished in his life. This guy has got his hands in so much stuff. And, I mean, just an all-around amazing dude. I mean, it, it just, a biggest microcosm of his character is that of all the things he's done, skating in the White House, you know, be becoming famous at age, like, 15, his biggest kind of most cherished 
endeavor in his life was going to Sierra Leone to teach poor kids how to skateboard and just to see their faces light up. If there is anything that's going to describe Tony Hawk, it's it's that story. So what an overall good guy. And hopefully we can get him on the podcast again to pick his brain even more. Can we also just mention he's bringing skateboarding to Broadway. Talk about an audience that you would never imagine focusing on skateboarding the mainstream appeal of Tony Hawk is so powerful that he has people investing in bringing his vision to life on Broadway once we get out of this COVID mess. That just tells you about the mega wattage of the brand that is Tony Hawk. So fucking cool. Dude has no ceiling. And we hope you guys enjoyed that episode. We It was very expansive for our minds and we hope it was expansive for yours. Please tune in on Thursday as we have Inside the NBA analyst and former NBA soup star, Kenny Smith. That was an awesome episode as well, Arthur. Yeah, I mean, people are going to love Kenny Smith. We were, just some full disclosure... We were originally only going to be given 15 to 20 minutes with Kenny. And Kenny was so fucking cool that we ran 55 minutes. When you guys hear the different topics that we covered with Kenny, from his relationship to Charles Barkley, to what Dean Smith meant to him as his college coach and mentor, to even ranking the greatest New York rappers of all time, you guys are going to all lose your shit. This has been one, that was one of my favorite interviews, Matt, not just because I love Kenny and watch him on Inside the NBA, but this guy has such a mind around basketball and culture, and he really shared all of it with us. I can't wait for people to hear this. And again, we love doing this for you guys. So your support is valued and it keeps us going in the right direction. So make sure to follow us on Twitter at Endless Double Underscore Hustle and on Instagram at Endless Hustle Pod. You can find me personally at Mr. Cohan on Twitter, Cohan spelled K-E-O-H-A-N and the same on Instagram. And I am at Arthur Cade on Twitter and it's me, Arthur Cade on Instagram. Everyone, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. As Matt had mentioned, the more listeners, the longer we're going to be doing this and bringing you some great guests. Thanks again. And guys, tune in. Fabulous interview with Kenny Smith on Thursday. Talk to you then. Peace.